the only one who made it? Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If you're worried about me... If we've got any surprises for each other... I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. everyone and welcome to Dark Natter, the podcast where we extract the blood of your favourite works of dark fiction and hold a heated copper wire against it to see if it is in fact alien blood that tries to escape in a homicidal frenzy. <laughs> I'm John Richter and in today's show I am honoured to be joined by fantastic horror writer extraordinaire and my very good friend Jacob Stephen Moa. Hello everybody, uh, like the man says, I'm Jacob, I am from America. I write books and ride on roller coasters, and this is my first time ever appearing on a podcast, so be nice to me. Ah, oh, well, you already in your opening sort of ten seconds, you sounded a lot more slick and accomplished than me and Liam ever did on this show, <laughs> so don't worry, I think you'll be a natural... Uh, well, it's all downhill from here, that's the slickest I get. Definitely not. And of course, this, this is not a show about being slick, this is a show about, well, slick with blood, perhaps. Sorry, I apologise. The puns won't get any better. Well, Jacob... As um, as you and all of our rabid army of listeners know by now, the point of this show is for our guests to offer up a favourite piece of dark fiction for us to discuss, dissect, debate, and maybe, just maybe, deem worthy of a place in our hallowed <coughs> Hall of Pain. But before we... Uh, oh, I was going to say, but before we find out which deeply disturbing creation you've brought along... Um, Please introduce yourself. But we've already done that bit, so that's it. My, my script is in tatters already. We've gone freestyle. We're well, off-road. I, well, I could do a bit more intro. I've got, I've, I've got a little more there. Yeah. No, that'd be great. Please yeah, sure. t- t- tell our listeners about your... Well, you've, you've got some... Um, uh, I, I know you have an upcoming book, which we will touch on, uh, uh, but uh, some other works as well. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been into books and fiction and stories just about as far back as I can remember. And I got into writing in a really serious fashion as far back in high school. Uh, I've got two books on shelves right now. The first is a composite novel that I worked in in college, and that's called The Book of Apparitions. And the second is a dark fantasy novella called Daughter of Man. And I've got my third coming out in frigid February in both the UK and the States, and that is my first 
full book-like horror story, and that is called The Unwelcome. So be on the lookout for that. I know that you've, you 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 read the whole thing of that, right? You finished that? I did indeed. Mm-hmm. I did. Uh, I, so this, you'll know this as a writer, of course. What happens is when people find out you're a writer and you've actually got some stuff published and so you theoretically might know a bit of what you're on about, you suddenly get a lot of people who will start saying, hey, will you read my stuff? Hey, I've written this thing. Do you want to, you know, could I have your kind of critique? Mm-hmm. And and it's and, it, and it's, a, it's a difficult sort of... Um, what's the word it's a bit of a minefield because you've got a you haven't got infinite hours in the day to read everything everyone's ever written you know or you it's surprising how many people have got a sort of you know a novel under their belt or half finished or the, you know the, the opening chapters so you're always it's always difficult to know which ones to commit to mm-hmm. and then when you when you have agreed to read someone's work you're always a bit what's the word you feel with kind of trepidation because if it's just not that good mm-hmm. you, you, oh no how am I going to break it to them what do I say how can I give constructive feedback so what happens when you read someone's work for the first time and it's absolutely brilliant oh. is just this massive sense of immediate relief followed by oh I'm actually really enjoying this and suddenly this is no longer a thing I'm doing as a favour to a friend it's now an act of pleasure and I'm demolishing it and I, yeah I read your book really really quickly because I thought it was terrific and, and obviously that was a kind of pre the final edited version but it, it was i really 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 enjoyed it so i can't wait for the finished article next year yeah, next year coming up faster and faster i remember when it was a uh, when they told me the the pub date was like you know i'd submitted it in february and like oh yeah we're gonna accept it and it's gonna come out in february and i was like oh well i can't be coming out this month and they're like, oh it's 2021 they're they're actually giving me a little bit of a run-up, which is nice. You know, it's, uh... Yeah, you get to work on the copy editing process. You get to, you know, really kind of revisit it and sort of finesse it to, to be as good as it can be. Um... Well, not only that, it gives them time to actually, you know, get it out there and market it. And hopefully, you know, by the time it actually hits shelves, there will be, in fact, shelves to put it on. Because, you know... Yes, well, I mean, that is a great point, isn't it? That that it's, I suppose, my experience of... of being published has been I have had paperbacks released but it has been largely kind of ebook sales and mm-hmm. I think the whole industry is definitely shifted in that direction but um, you, you do you know you do want that kind of physical hard copy in your hands don't you and, and ideally on the shelves of some bookstores as well mm-hmm. yeah very true very true and I cause that's always been the dream of like you go into like a Barnes Noble or I don't know if what uh, is there a, is a chain of bookstores. In the we UK? have water, yeah. We have Waterstones. For oh, your your Barnes and Noble is equivalent to our Waterstones, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah, you're exactly right. You, you you walk into one, you want to just sort of accidentally bump into your own book on a shelf, don't you? That would be the that's the dream. Mm-hmm. Because I, I have I have a couple of colleagues who are a, a little more established than I am, and I'll go into. I was in I was in Chicago. Uh, for work, and I happened to walk into a bookstore, and I was just like uh, pondering around the the science fiction section, and there was his book, like three or four copies, mm. and one of them was signed. He had been there, or he had somehow really? gotten a signed copy to Chicago, and he lives down in North Carolina, which is hours and hours and hours and hours away. And like I, I want that. I want to walk in and see like there's there even even here, even miles and miles away from where I live, here is evidence that I have put something out in the world that people would just kind of yeah. stumble upon and see. And, 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 and definitely the related one would also be sort of just spotting someone reading your book, you know, on a, on a train or something. Just sort of, I, I can never, I mean, that's never happened to me and probably never will, but you never know. But if it did, 
I always wonder, you know, would you just sort of sit there and feel this lovely, warm, smug feeling of, oh, I wrote that? Or would you sort of be unable to resist blundering over, excuse me, to support unsuspecting stranger? I wrote that book. That did actually happen to me once. I was on a bus. Oh, did and, it? Yes. It was, the, it, was the, it was my first one, that, which, is, which was amazing because, like, he got, like, one of the 10 copies that had ever been sold. That's brilliant. So uh, I, I was on a bus. And I looked over, and there's somebody reading the book of apparitions. And I told him, you know, you know, hey, I wrote that book. And he said, no, you didn't. And went back to reading. And that did was he the, just not believe you. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> so it didn't pan out. How I've got it in my head. Then I hadn't even thought of that possibility that they would just say, no, you didn't. That's bollocks. Go away. It made a little oh. bit of sense though, because like I, you know, I was only like 22 at the time. I looked like a child. Yeah, well, you are. A, you're a very fresh-faced fellow. Uh, you know, we've met over <laughs> video calls in the past. You have. You have a youthful look, which I'm obviously very jealous of because I look about 50. Sadly for me. No, so it, it made sense though, in the same way that like I'll. I will still occasionally get carded at, uh, you know, bars and restaurants and things. I, I, I don't look like somebody who had published a book. I look like somebody who is, you know, late for school somewhere with a piece of toast <laughs> in my mouth, you know, running like an anime. Oh, but, well, it's, it's interesting that as well, isn't it? Like, I suppose there's a thing of, yeah, what do people expect writers to look like? I think they think maybe we all, I don't know, look like Stephen King and we've all got slightly maniacal wild haircuts and, mm-hmm. you know, tweed or something. I, I think that's definitely true. People have this this picture in their heads. Uh, specifically, like, they, they want specifically a horror writer to look like a horror writer. They should wear black. They should, they should probably not be, like, terribly conventionally attractive. They should... Uh, you know, probably be very tall and have like very like pale, pale, pale and gaunt, scraggly yeah. hair, maybe a little bit yeah. of a beard, like like the five o'clock shadow. They should look like they're about to fail at solving a noir mystery because they're to be like gunned down by the mob. <laughs> yeah, like the writing process is really taking its toll on them, mm-hmm. and they're, they're just a shadow of their former self. You know, teetering on the brink of a full-blown um, sort of The Shining style breakdown. It's just a, a complete just fall to pieces, like multiple bodies mess. Well, that that's and that that is a look that we can only dream of, sadly, because um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, you've got your youthful good looks, and I've got my boring, respectable uh, job as an accountant to uphold. So uh, I've, I've thought about day. hiring a, a double <laughs> for uh, for cons and things. Like, <laughs> you know, th- this is me. I wrote the books, but you know. This this is uh, this is the one who pretends to have written the book, so people will actually like understand what's happening here. That's a good idea, actually. I wonder if you could you could like hire a kind of a body double who looks really writery and just sort of really has a real kind of maudlin aspect to them, and you know, I don't know, a drug habit or something. Disney, <laughs> we'll workshop this later. Well, that's something that a lot of uh, erotica writers will do if they appear in public. Is you know. You know, they uh, they look like average people because they are average people, you know, and they write these things because that's, you know, what they think about. That's what they want to read, but they don't look like... People expect them to look like the characters in their books, you know, you know very young yeah. and slim and probably very curvy, usually blonde or redheaded for whatever reason. And so they will, if they're having, like, a book appearance, they'll hire somebody... No way. To... I did not know that. I did not know that was a thing that happened in that sort of oh, genre. Oh, yeah. No, that's... It's... It's fairly common, you know, because you you, you want to look on the back of the book and see the picture of, you know, somebody that you want to imagine having sex and... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I guess it would undermine the whole kind of, um, what's the word? You wouldn't want to see, oh, go on, I'll say it. it's a bit cruel, but you wouldn't want to, like, a picture of George R. R. Martin on the back. Uh, it just wouldn't mm-hmm. quite have the right feel, would it? For it, that it, it would, I feel like it would put you off of it myself. So. Well, but then maybe some people are, are big fans, so I should take it. I'll probably get an army of uh, outraged um, Game of Thrones aficionados there. How dare you insult the great man? Um, I, I think they all, they all understand that, like, he's a... He's the. We were talking about the stereotypical horror writer. He's probably the stereotypical sort of fantasy writer, maybe. Probably, yeah. Beard, big beard. Mm-hmm. Looks like he drinks ale. It, that that or, is that is mead. an ale drinking face and body. Correct, exactly. Which I think is what he wants. Mm-hmm. So, if you're listening, George, which he definitely won't be. Um, <laughs> no hard feelings. <laughs> please don't. Please don't send your legions of followers to do unspeakable Game of Thrones style torture scenes upon me. Um, well, in a, what's the word I'm looking for? A jarring segue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about your upcoming novel, which I, um, I know one of the big in- influences on this excellent piece of work, which I highly recommend. Uh, and I think I'm right in saying that that is the piece of dark fiction that you bring in today for consideration. Uh, am I correct in this assessment, Jacob? That is very true. Uh, like most horror fans, I've always been exceptionally drawn to horror stories that take place in, you know, bleak, isolated, environmentally inhospitable environments. So today we're going to talk about none other than John Carpenter's 1982 cult classic film, The Thing. One of my my all-time favorite monster movies, probably one of my favorite films altogether, and I watch it every year when the weather starts getting cold and it never fails to... Yeah. Do the same thing it did for me, you know, back in college when I first saw it. Oh, it's it's and as we've pointed out on this show before, one of the big flaws in this show is that any sense of um, anticipation or uncertainty about whether the piece of fiction that you're offering up will get into the hall of pain or not is dismissed within about the first ten seconds because mm-hmm. of. Um, how, how enthusiastic <laughs> I, I am about this about the thing because I agree with you it is like what an absolute classic um, as you said directed by John Carpenter uh, starring Kurt Russell uh, a young Kurt Russell in his prime one of my favourite actors uh, but alongside a very very talented kind of ensemble cast uh-huh. and, and the, you know there's so much to talk about but may, maybe that's a good place to start it's uh, as you said it's a very isolated setting you know really packed with kind of atmosphere and slowly ratcheting dread but that one of the reasons that works so well is because the the group of characters all male Mm -hmm. that are trapped together in this you know antarctic research facility they're just so good and believable Uh, that that was one of the the major um advantages of the way they shot the movie is they, they shot up in alaska it was actually very very cold on set and they kept you know, all of these actors, you know, kind of like cooped up together for a very long time. So they were able to develop this very, very natural uh, chemistry and relationships between them. But also like, you know, because they're they're packed in and always kind of cold and always kind of miserable. And so it, they, they developed like this very natural tension as well. Like the, the arguments and the fights and the little flare ups of tempers that you see on screen, you know, none of them are like, just like, completely improvised or like that that emotion is real for them because you know John Carpenter yeah. his infinite wisdom was essentially torturing them for about four months and 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 as you say you can really 
feel that sense. It feels real. The situation that they're in feels real or their reaction to it. It, it doesn't feel like a bunch of actors pretending. It feels like a bunch of blokes trapped in a research facility, tense, you know, hungry, miserable, isolated. And, and clearly that, that's a manifestation of the kind of production process that they went through, whether that was intentional or not, or whether it just kind of happened that way. It, happily, the outcome was, was a great film. Although, absolutely critically panned at the time of its release it was it uh, <laughs> I, I i can never i can never get over the story because it's been so influential since then that you'd think oh yeah. of course this was this massive hit at the time no no it wasn't um no, not at all and there were there were there and since then because it's been so influential since then people have a whole bunch of theories of like why didn't this make money why wasn't this like the, the massive thing it is now and one of them is you know when it came out like this was only a few months after another very famous movie about aliens came out and that was et yeah. people wanted et they wanted this you know this this friendly version of you know, a, a mm. close encounter and after you know seeing that this cute cuddly alien the whiplash between that and this bleak nihilistic human hating story it, it, it was too much for even people in the 80s who seemed to have a pretty high tolerance that kind of thing otherwise yeah it's a, it's a really interesting point that because i haven't that's a, that's a really good theory of why it went down like such a kind of lead balloon because yeah it is it is a it's a very well known film it, it, it it's a cult classic which i know is a kind of overused phrase mm-hmm. but it is a you know people the likes of you and me and plenty of others really really love it and it, and it's been so influential in so many other works of fiction that yeah you forget just how badly received it was and if you if you google it and look at some of the quotes it's not like meh you know mediocre or you know six out of ten it's like this is garbage this is a mess this is just gore you know there's no substance here whatsoever rubbish and it, the, the the way that kind of consensus has shifted over time is 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 incredible really it's completely gone from reviled to revered over over a few decades Mm -hmm. and not only like revered but like like its influence has been so clear and so widespread that you know like you like there are so many you know things that are like cultural mainstays now that can you can trace their roots and their their lineage almost directly back to the thing and even more so than the original book even more so than you know the original movie because one thing that I think a lot of people end up forgetting it's like the thing is kind of a remake of the original. Yes, yes. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Have you seen the original, the the old black no, and white one? No, I've I've never seen. I keep meaning to get round to it, and I've never actually sat down and watched it. I have read the novella. You know, the uh, it's mm-hmm. a, a, perhaps just to cover that off. So you've got a 1938 short story or a novella by John W. Campbell Jr., which is mm-hmm. called "Who Goes There." Mm-hmm. And one of my friends, who's, an, who's a massive fan of the thing, um, it, we, we actually went to watch John Carpenter live a couple of years ago, doing like a set, you know, of all his synth-based sort of soundtracks to all his really? films. Which was incredible. People in Halloween masks, like big trouble in Little China merchandise. It was that was a great show. Mm-hmm. And anyway, this guy Marcus, hello Marcus, if you're listening, <laughs> hope you're well. He um, he bought me a collection of um, I think it was John W. Campbell Jr.'s works, basically, almost like his complete works. And it had obviously the, the kind of centerpiece of it was Who Goes There, which inspired the thing. Read it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Although it 
it had that sense of you know the old cliche of like oh the book's better than the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's just because as you say the film has become such a big deal to me. You know since then, that reading the kind of relatively short, good, innovative, old. You know we're going back to the thirties here, and obviously it's not quite the same as the film. It's set at a different kind of time, and it, it was a. It, it was a good read, but it, to me, it didn't seem a patch on the, the John Carpenter movie. And yeah, the, the 1951 original version, I think its full title is "The Thing from Another World." Mm-hmm. I have never seen, but I'm I'm told it's it you know it's not quite as special as the as the 1982 effort. I think it was special at the time, like it was it was a hit at the time. I I haven't seen the whole thing, obviously, but I I've seen like the parts of it that have the monster in it because I wanted to like you know how did they do those effects back then and what they did is that they they didn't they didn't even try they (laughs) it was it was much more of a a frankenstein like creature that was kind of thought out you know big and towering and lumbering and muscular and they described it as kind of a vegetable creature which was a very weird direction yeah it was a they they, people who were fans of it affectionately call him like the the big old carrot head or something like that he's a he's a carrot person Oh, funny. So he just, they, they went down this almost, maybe not intentionally, but almost like a B-movie kind of route, because mm-hmm. that was all they could do, I guess, with the special effects they had available at the time. Mm-hmm. As apparently, it was a very, very dangerous shoot to be on, too. I heard stories of you know the, the guy who had in the, the suit playing him at the end when they like electrocute him to finally kill him, because of course he's impervious to bullets. Um, like the yes. suit he was in, like caught on fire, and he nearly had like third degree burns all over his body if they hadn't oh, freed him God. from it in time. But you know that was movie making back then. They they just didn't care. Yeah, it was just everything was you know all industry, the construction industry, and I mean that is still dangerous to this day. But you look at what they used to be like in decades gone by in the twentieth century, and they were just all there was just no sort of health and safety legislation to speak of. You know, stuntmen were dying on set all the time, and. That people were just taking these crazy risks, like um, who was the what was the Brandon Lee? He got killed, didn't he, on the set of The Crow? Uh, he did, uh, a, a, and a real tragedy that was. He was a, a great talent. I love that movie as well. Um, that's another one that gets a, a watch. Yeah, we'll, we'll put we'll put that on the list. So you'll have to come back on for I a future episode. Certainly we'll do will. The Crow one day. Don't mind if I do. But to, to get back to uh, to the thing itself, um, you, you can't talk about. You can't talk about the thing, you can't talk about really any of John Carpenter's work without talking about those absolutely groundbreaking practical special effects that honestly, oh, and, yeah. like everyone says, like, oh, this movie still holds up. Those effects still hold up. And I can remember yeah, the very first totally time I ever agree. saw the the movie, I was I was in doing this 24-hour movie marathon at my old college. And right about at the 12-hour mark, halfway through, it's midnight. We're all kind of tired, but still ready to watch another movie. And The Thing comes on, and I've never seen The Thing. I don't even really know what it's about at the time. So when the... Obviously, we're getting into a little bit of spoilers here already. If you haven't seen The Thing, pause the podcast, go watch it, come back. Spoilers from here on out. When the dog first splits open in the cage, oh, God. I realized, oh, this is a horror movie. Yeah, because you're quite right. Up till then, it's a very slow-paced start, which is good. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as any regular listener will know, I like my slow-building dread. You know, don't give me the gross out until 
like you've earned it kind of thing and it and it you know it spends a lot of time building to that moment but then it really does deliver on the kind of gross out front mm-hmm. and the the weird thing is like even though yeah, everyone talks about the effects even talk like the, the transformation sequences when people like split open and burst open and transform and subsume each other and like of course that's all very very famous but well, I think one thing that people end up forgetting is like those effects don't work without John Carpenter. You know, it's his cinematography and his direction that makes yeah. them look as good as they do. Because if they're if they're just standing still, if you watch like the behind the scenes, you know they they look realistic, but they don't look as scary as they would if John Carpenter's the one behind the camera. That's a great point because you do. I, th- I think that the, the gentleman in question, the, the the special effects, the creature effects kind of expert, was a fellow called Rob Bottin, mm-hmm. who I think is, is pretty well known, kind of right, rightly is highly regarded. Mm-hmm. But you, you're quite right; it still requires the you know the genius of a director to take that and make it smooth off the rough edges and shoot it from the right angle and you know edit it together seamlessly so it works and it really does work i mean it, it's, some of the stuff he was using it was everything from you know chemicals food products rubber chewing gum at one point for the kind of stretchy separating kind of flesh mm-hmm. i think i can picture the specific scene where that was deployed to, to, to great effect it was when uh, it, the guy's know, head was coming off and like later his correct. head like it, it gets like the spider legs and stuff Oh, that's great, and it, like, and and I love that's. It's quite hard to articulate, but that like I write horror, and you know, I suppose I write a few different genres, but I've dabbled in in a bit of kind of horror short stuff, and that that moment when you realise, just just as a very quick um, summary of the thing, the, the the premise is you've got this you know group of trapped you know scientists and other workers, at least one of them has been in effect replaced by an alien that has this kind of shape-shifting amorphous blob properties that can you know, change its appearance and its structure. And it also has the ability to infect others and, in effect, replace them. So not only do you... It's, it's almost like a whodunit, isn't it? Not mm-hmm. only do you not know who is who is secretly the thing, but lots of people, more than one, might secretly be things. And, and that kind of tension really permeates the movie, that, that sort of suspicion. And is it you? Is it you? And of course, th- what that does is it makes for some really brilliant reveal scenes mm. where, uh, you know, such a body is revealed to in fact have been replaced by the thing or a thing or a part of the thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, cue horrific body horror, appendages, head neck stretching, head plops off. And then, uh, as you said, Jacob, it, it, you know, as if that wasn't enough to send us kind of retching and shrieking from our seats, then the, the severed head then sprouts some spider legs and scuttles off down the corridor. And you know, you almost want to get out of your chair and just clap like, yes, that is amazing. I actually saw a featurette about uh, how they did that particular scene because... You know, there there are other ones I can kind of see, like, all right, this this is what they did, this is how they they made it. It still looks good, but like I can kind of see behind the scenes. But like, how they got the spider legs to come out of you know the the fake severed head of I can never remember the character's name. Uh, they, they no, they, not me neither. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, they I, have they have some quite funny names, don't they? Like, and I can never, you know, they've yeah, got like Windows, Knowles. And yeah, Nile. Windows. <laughs> one guy's surname is Windows. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I watched this feature and I realized that the legs. When it's on camera, the legs aren't coming out. The legs are being drawn back in by wires, and they're just running the film in reverse. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Which is why it looks so, like, unnatural and jerky, because, like, it's not meant to be viewed like that. It's, you know, we're, we're seeing something that's been, like, pulled out of time. But it's, And I think there is a thing, I've said this umpteen times on the show, but it, 
CGI is not yet at the level where it can completely fool you. It, it can be used very, very effectively, you know, fleeting glimpses. It can be used to depict things you, you'd have no hope of ever doing in any other special effects kind of solution. Mm-hmm. As you say, you know, you go back far enough and films just couldn't do certain things because the effects didn't exist to do them justice. But th- I think CGI has just become completely, it's overused. I mean, we, we, we talk about some of the things, um, precursors, the 2011 um, prequel mm, that no was made, way. that falls completely falls into this pitfall. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's pretty good. The film is decent, well-acted, mm. tense. And, and then when the thing itself is revealed, it's just a CGI, boring, sort of shiny-looking... It gets far too much screen time. And by the end, it's not scary at all. It's just, a, you know, you feel like you're watching a, a video game or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas the John Carpenter effects, they're real. And you can tell they're real. They're tangible. They're really actually there. And you could touch them and not that you'd want to. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, to me, it makes a huge difference to how effective and scary it is. It, it, it's one of the real tragedies of film, in my opinion. Because I have, I have seen the 2011 The Thing. And, like, it is well acted. I'll watch anything that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is in. You know, she's mm-hmm. uh, she's Ramona Flowers. She's Huntress and Birds of Prey. I'll if, any anytime she's on screen, I'm there. And, and like, and when it's doing the paranoia angle, where they're trying to guess who the thing is, it I'm I'm right back in '82. It works almost just as well because like that concept yeah. is so sound. And yeah, of course, you know, it's no surprise that I also am not a huge fan of the of the, the CG effects in the movie. Um, I think the designs are fine, but you can very obviously tell they're not really there. And the problem yeah. is that didn't have to be true. They did have practical effects. They just yes. painted over them with the computer. So they are there, which is why the designs look so good, because they are based on real things, but you know, the, the lighting is wrong because they've just basically airbrushed over all of it in post-production. I just It's almost like there's a collective kind of delusion. Like I, um, w- one of my friends works in, you know, kind of CGI stuff and, and he's great, incredibly talented artist and some of the stuff they produce in movies that he's been involved in looks amazing. But th- there is an element of, perhaps there's just so many people involved in this industry and they are artists so they want to showcase their work. And it, I, I don't know, it just feels like there's been a, Hollywood seems to have made this decision to just use CGI wherever possible, or even when not, even when not strictly necessary. And I just don't really understand why. It's like, is it, is it just, is it only me and you who can see that it doesn't really look that good? Like, like Terminator is another example. We we did an episode on Terminator, so I won't go into great detail, but I, I have this distinct memory of watching Terminator Salvation. And there have been lots and lots of CGI Terminators in that film. And, you know, they look eh, okay. And then there were a few scenes where they clearly had actually built one out of actual metal or plastic or whatever. And, and they were using practical, physical effects instead of CGI. And those are the best bits in the film. Because the Terminators look like they have heavy, chunky, scary, physical presences. Instead of just a bit of graphics on a screen that feels like it's got no substance. And that, and yet, people don't seem to think this in the industry for some reason. Well, there's there's a I have a theory on this. There's a recurring pattern with Hollywood where they, when something does well or something does poorly, they learn the wrong lesson from it. Yes. Instead of like learning what people actually enjoy, they'll look just at what makes money and say, "Oh, well, you know, we used CGI in this one movie. This movie did well." 
it must have been, people must like CGI. They must like explosions. Yeah. They must like computer generated monsters and effects and things. Despite the fact that's not what we came to see. We came for the story. And if the, yeah. you know, if the CGI improves the story, good on you. If the practical effects, everything has to be in service of the story. But the Hollywood doesn't care about the story. Hollywood cares about, you know, the bottom line. But they don't, they, they always stumble about how to get there. You know, sometimes they get it right. You know, sometimes they'll hire a, a a director or an effects man like Rob Bottom who can really deliver, and they'll they'll make something fantastic. But more often than not, like they're really just fumbling in the dark. I think. Yeah, and and you know, one springs to mind is like Die Hard. What a great movie that is! Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. Why is Die Hard a brilliant movie? Lots of reasons, but one of the reasons that isn't why it's a brilliant movie is because it's got big explosions in it, and yet that that was one of the films that seemed to lead to this. You know, action movies must have huge, enormous, great big explosions kind of trope, which I'm not aware that I've ever gone to the cinema to see an explosion. I go to the cinema, as you say, to see a great story or a tense piece of cinema or an actor who I like. Or so, yeah, learning the wrong lessons. I think that's I think that's a good theory, actually. Well, you'll remember, like when the when the Marvel mer- uh, Marvel movies first started coming out, um, and especially like in around like Phase Two of the MCU. Uh, Hollywood kind of learned the wrong lesson there too. Say, like, oh, these movies are doing really well. I bet you it's because people like these actors. So they started putting those actors in other more mediocre products, like uh, mm-hmm. yeah, what's it, Chris Hemsworth? They put him in a Men in Black movie. Uh, Chadwick yeah. Boseman who plays Black Panther. They put him in a I forget what the movie is. I had Bridges in the title, but it was some kind of uh, cop drama. And they were they were both entirely. You know, between like mediocre products and but or like outright bad products, like the one that Chadwick Boseman was in, and they they failed to grasp. Like, it's not we like those actors fine, but like they're not who we're there to see. We're here to see those characters that they've made. Yes. Yeah, we like Robert Downey Jr. just fine. We like Iron Man. We love Iron Man way more, which is why we'll go and see. You know, people will go see a Batman movie. Even if it's Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, not because Ben Affleck's in it, because it's got Batman in it. Yeah, and and, and but by the reverse token, but that doesn't mean that every movie that has any superhero in it is automatically going to be good. You know, see Aquaman mm-hmm. or see you know any of the other kind of scrape in the barrel stuff that's been coming out. And I haven't actually seen Aquaman, so I probably shouldn't slag that one off. But it just seems that again, it's the wrong lesson. That the the takeaway seems to be that oh, we all love superheroes, so any superhero will do. And it's like, well, no, it just the good ones, thanks. Mm-hmm. Like there, there has to be. It, it's it. It always baffles me because like the, these people work in movies, these Hollywood executives, like, but they don't seem to know what makes a movie good. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think they're watching what they're making. I think they're just like, you know, this, you know, they're plugging in numbers. They're like, uh, Jason Momoa yeah. uh, plus Axes plus Game of Thrones equals, I don't know, make it. Here's yeah. $20 billion. Some sort of algorithm behind it. Some sort of sinister algorithm. Mm-hmm. Although I'd love to watch the, the, the films that such a such an entity would make. But there is that short one. That, oh, sorry, we're completely off topic. But um, <laughs> there is a short film where... They they used um you know like an AI basically that they fed it billions of film scripts and then you know off you go cough up a film script rudimentary neural network and it just came up with this complete kind of not quite gibberish but clearly very 
uncanny valley a bit wrong you know weird things that didn't quite make sense were being done and said and then somebody made a short film out of it and just filmed you know filmed this crazy script for about however long it is 10 or 15 minutes like in one scene i think there's a man and a woman having a really intense conversation about who knows what and then halfway through the scene the man just stops and coughs up an eyeball and then (laughs) carries on talking as if nothing's happened there's a certain amount of like really avant-garde charm there, though. Like I would, I would watch that. Like I, I want to know where that's going now. Why did he cough up eyeballs? Who are these people? What's happened to them? Some, some inspiration for uh, your future book projects. Um, mm-hmm. well, well, anyway, I, I suppose back back to the thing. There, there was one bit that we we both touched on, but maybe didn't didn't quite do enough justice to it because you used the perfect words that I, I failed to to find before is the word paranoia mm-hmm. and I, I almost can't think of a film that has this level of sustained you know two hours of just pure paranoia just throughout the characters are all at each other's throats on the brink of you know one of the characters does basically have a complete breakdown and starts smashing up the place because mm-hmm. he can't take the can't take the strain or is it just a bluff because he's already been infected and he's already a thing and he's trying to cover it up it's it's brilliant it's it's such a clever way of it's such a clever twist on the sort of who Almost like an Agatha Christie whodunit kind of mm-hmm. set situation. It's very uh, like, and then there were none. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, t- totally right. And 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 as a viewer, you can try and get you know who do you think is a thing. That that aspect is is definitely something you can kind of play along with in your first in your first mm-hmm. viewing. Mm-hmm. I, I think one one of the really brilliant things that Carpenter did, like to create that that sense of just you know oppressive atmosphere, gnawing paranoia, is that. He did not tell the actors who was the thing and who wasn't. Oh, really? So, that is brilliant. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's I love that. And so everyone thought, like, oh, it's, it's going to be him, even though it's... And, and part of that is, like, I don't think... And it, this is never confirmed, but I've, I've always had this theory that, like, you don't know you're a thing until you transform. Because not only is it copying your... Your body, it's, it's it copies, like, your, your, your neural networks and your... Uh, your your, yes. your personality essentially. So you are you are you until it decides not to be you anymore. Yes, and yeah, that, I mean, what a great way to disguise itself is by not allowing almost. It's not quite a host as such, but yeah, it almost doesn't allow its own. It's almost like creating clones, isn't it? That don't mm-hmm. that don't know they're clones until it decides to push the button. I mean that yeah, that is never really. I, I mean. Another great thing about the film is it doesn't feel the need to go off into loads of exposition about the creature and exactly how the creature works and blah, blah, blah. It, it just gives you the bare minimum of what you need to understand the peril and how, how truly kind of insidious and horrible it is. And then like off you go, enjoy the carnage. Mm-hmm. It, it's meant to be like this really... It, it's not all powerful because they, they do manage to defeat several of the things throughout the course of the movie, usually through fire. Uh, which is always a smart... Yeah, keep your flamethrowers on you at all times if you're in a John Carpenter movie. But... It's really like, recklessly used, those flamethrowers. Oh, like, yeah, they're like, literally in... They're, they're in, like, a lab that looks like it's made out of, I don't know, like, asbestos and cardboard, and they're just torching the place. I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing, but, like, there there wasn't a... There, there wasn't, like, a, a safety meeting they had before. All right, so we're going we're gonna to stand here. This is the minimum safe distance. You all have to get behind me while we torch... Uh, Wolfer Brimley over there. Sorry, Wolfer Brimley, but you know, <laughs> this is all. This is a bad way for you to find out what's happening to you. But you know, there you are. But so it, it's it's not an all powerful thing, but it is just strong enough 
that anybody can die basically at any time. And they established that very early. Like you could like you could be having a conversation, all of a sudden Keith David will turn into a monster. And you have to deal with that. And so like that gets in your head like at any time the worst possible thing you can imagine could happen. And it could happen to you. You don't know. Yes, well, we'll come on we'll come on in a little while, I guess, to your own work and how it, how that sort of sense of paranoia was certainly a big influence for you. Um, but I just th- th- there was one other thing I just wanted to cover from the, the sure. movie was the ending. With you talked about Keith David's character, uh, Childs is he called Childs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, McCready and Childs are the two that remain. The the last survivors, and and there's that uh, one of the kind of fan theories doing the rounds is that the impression you get is that Childs and McCready, so Kurt Russell's character mm-hmm. and Keith David's character, they have successfully survived the thing the thing's attacked, but now they're, they're going to suffer and, you know, potentially freeze to death because they've blown up the entire laboratory. But there is a reading of that scene where one or both of them are actually things have mm. already been taken over. And I think someone pointed out that there is, there's a couple of things with Childs where his breath doesn't seem to be frosting, misting in the air in the same way as MacReady's is. He, he, he looks noticeably not as cold. Mm. And there's also a thing where I think MacReady gives it offers him a drink. Child swigs from the bottle. The music plays a little sinister kind of, you know, ding ding ding. That brilliant soundtrack mm-hmm. note kind of kicks in, and MacReady kind of laughs. And the implication is that MacReady has offered him, I don't know, petrol instead of booze. I I, I have heard that one. And, and he swigged, and the fact that Child swigs it and doesn't show any disgust mm-hmm. almost is like MacReady's caught caught the thing out he's proved that Childs has actually been replaced by a creature mm-hmm. I love that interpretation I don't know whether it was intentional but it, it it does work when you watch the scene back with that in mind oh there there are so many like great intelligent interpretations of that scene you know one being that I have heard the the petrol theory I've heard the breath theory I've also heard that there there might have been some intention that they are both the thing and don't know what the other one is. So when he gives him the petrol and he drinks it and he laughs, it's almost in relief. It's like, oh yes, at least one of us is going to get away. Because there is, and I don't know how many of you out there knew this, but there is, they did shoot an alternate ending to that. Oh really? I don't think I know about, I, no, this doesn't ring a bell at all. Do, do, what was, what were the specifics? It's, it basically, it plays out the exact same way we see in the movie except there's one more shot afterwards of a dog running across the snow. Ooh, as if one of them... One of them one of them killed the other and got away using the dog. Oh. Which would have led into... There was a planned like TV series about the thing. It was also just called The Thing. It never got off the ground. But I, I had read some of the plans for it, and I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish it could have come together because... Essentially, it wouldn't have been in Antarctica anymore. It would have been like a series about its slow takeover of the planet because it got away. Yeah. And apparently, there was there was some plan. And, and there, there was there was certainly kind of there were other series, weren't there, around at the same time, like you know, like V and so on. Oh, that were I never, kind of, I never you know, watched V. I remember alien. hearing about it. Did you see V? No, no, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I'm, it's, it's not a show I've ever watched. I guess my 
Yeah, X Files would probably be more my sort of era, which is a different, whole different take on the kind of alien mm-hmm. uh, sort of plot. But uh, actually, as a quick aside, there is an X Files episode that is heavily, heavily inspired by the thing. It was one of the first, the first, certainly in the first season. I think it was almost like the fourth or fifth episode. I think it's called Ice. And it's got slightly implausibly, you know, the FBI are called in to go to a remote Antarctic research facility to investigate some sort of problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends up being a kind of a parasitic sort of worm that drives people to, to you know, ho- acts of homicidal kind of, uh, you know, frenzy. Um, but the, what they're going for with that episode is exactly the, the, you know, that same paranoid, you know, who's infected, who's got the worm, we don't know. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, as you say, it's inspired so many things over the years and, and continues to do so. What is your, because like, I, I'm sure you're familiar with a whole bunch of them, like either like adaptations or expansions or, you know, things that are very obviously influenced by specifically the film. Of those, what is your personal favorite? Uh, my, my, my favorite, um, this thing that has been inspired by the thing and like this idea of, you know, like, you know, bodies being repurposed and, you know, specifically the, 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 the visuals of the effects is the Dead Space series. Oh, yes. See, that was what I was kind of rooting for was to, to get a video game. And I can't believe Dead Space didn't pop into my head. I, I, I didn't particularly like the third Dead Space because they went down the sort of, cooperative Resident Evil 6 kind of route. Mm-hmm. But the first two, particularly the first one, mm-hmm. I mean, those games are just absolute masterpieces. Like, you know, they've got that B-movie, schlock, horror, gore, disgusting body horror angle. Mm-hmm. But the, they've got the tension, they've got the dread. They've got know. the atmosphere, certainly. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant games. Mm-hmm. And I like, you remember Isaac's... Um, they might have only brought this in the second one, but he's got he swears a lot when he stamps on stuff <laughs> it was just really satisfying. Like he can't just open a crate full of ammo; he has to kick it to bits while shouting, "You know, fuck, motherfucker!" Well, it was. I used to just stand there doing it for minutes <laughs> at a time because it was funny. No, I, I didn't. I didn't remember that from the. I've only ever played through the first one, but I, I remember that like people did like the first one. I like the second one a whole awful lot as well. And I know they had had the same problem that you had with the third one. That they tried to go this more. They, they they tried to make it, you know, the Resident Evil stuff, they essentially tried to make it like a almost like a battle royale kind of thing, which again, this goes back to what we said about Hollywood. I think that game developers are the same thing. They saw that, you know, like cooperative shooters like Fortnite and Apex Legends were doing really well. So they're trying yeah. to shoehorn everything else into it. Like there's a there there's a Batman game coming out that was like announced yesterday. It was like Batman Gotham Knights. And people were so excited, they thought it was going to be like a sequel to Arkham Knight, which everyone loves and I love. Um, but, but they, they made it like this, like, multiplayer, like, stat-based experience that I don't, that, that's Ugh. not what people want out of Batman. They don't want no. to, like, punch thugs and, like, have to upgrade their punches and see, like, numbers flying out of them so you can see, like, you can chart numerically how well Batgirl is doing fighting oh, thugs. It just, it, it's exactly the same problem as you were saying before. You, you you know, learning the wrong lessons of what they think people want from games. It's like, oh, people seem to like open world games. Therefore, let's make every single game an open world game. And it's like, no, some, some, some open world games are good, but sometimes we want to play like a curated linear experience that's more like a movie. Like, I just... It, it, it's really frustrating, isn't it? That they just don't seem to be able to... It's all about what's the current... Th- Even though 
everything that is popular, that is the zeitgeist, that is you know be- becomes big, it becomes that because it's an original good idea. Mm-hmm. They still think the right thing to do is just to ape it and to just you know Im- imitation. And it, 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 needless to say, that just leads you down a route of kind of deterioration and derivative rubbish and and then eventually finally they lurch onto the next thing that they can kind of you know suck suck all the life out of but i didn't know that about the batman game that is that's i mean that doesn't sound the way you've described it does not sound appealing certainly it's again it's a real tragedy and to to bring it full circle um it might be that these executives, these game developers, and these Hollywood types are very much like the thing itself that they they know what's good when they see it, but they don't know how to make original stuff. So all they can do is infect and copy and copy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, if that, I mean, you know, sum up this episode perfectly. We've now managed to find a way to to join the. Uh, the, the Hollywood and video game corporate executives, <laughs> soulless kind of marketing teams. Uh, we, we've actually proven categorically that they are actually things from outer space. Oh, uh, well, a lot of things would make a lot of sense if that were true. <laughs> it's, also, it's all so clear to me now. I am uh, interested in doing me, me a bit of kind of uh, Googling of stuff inspired by the thing. And you never know sort of to what extent you get in this things inspire each other and it all becomes a bit circular but certainly akira with mm-hmm. its you know grotesque sort of um, body horror mm-hmm. finale that that is that is something that i think you, you could probably trace back i, I think but of course I'm, I'm not sure when the original manga came out um and then another one that just popped up which i wouldn't have thought of at all had it not been suggested to me by another sinister algorithm um, was It Follows. I don't know if you saw It Follows oh, when that came out a few yes, years ago. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, I, I, I adore so that movie so much. And that score, that score is one of my favourite like, yeah. modern modern horror scores of all time. Love it so much. It's, it, it's Disaster Piece, isn't it? Have mm-hmm. I got that yeah, right? Yeah, it is. I think Disaster Piece. <laughs> Oh, it's great, and and yeah, you probably I hadn't even thought of that aspect, but you could probably say that the score is probably quite heavily influenced by Carpenter's kind of synth-driven, you know, suspenseful horror soundtracks. Um, but yeah, that the reason I wouldn't have thought of that is because I suppose the, the obvious part of the thing is the body horror, and the, it's not gore exactly, but it is grotesque, disgusting, you know, pe- limbs bulging out where they shouldn't be, and blood all over the place whereas it follows is not like that at all but what you have got is a barely comprehensible sort of antagonist entity that can shapeshift and disguise itself in plain sight Mm -hmm. and that is you know what could be scarier than that a monster that is right there but you don't know it's a monster that that maybe is is the essence of of the horror i think in 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 some ways and it's a monster that only you can see yes so no one else can warn you like no you you're the only thing that can protect you from it because it doesn't exist for anybody else. It's just single laser focused on you for a reason that you can't understand. And it, it's like cost me like the thing in the Terminator almost because like the Terminator is like yeah. laser focused on Sarah Connor and is kind of implacable in that same way. But the thing can shapeshift. And, and hide in the way that the Terminator can't. Yeah, it's got that kind of relentless, relentless pursuit aspect, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you don't even know why. Mm-hmm. Oh, great! We could probably do an episode on it. Follows in and of itself because it's that's a belter. That really, really good film. Oh, I, I would, I would come back for that.
one of the really, really lesser known adaptations of the thing is there was a short story that came out. I forget exactly one, but it's a it's a Peter Wells. It's called The Things, and it's basically a retelling of the last act of the movie, first person from the point of view of the monster. I think I remember you telling me about that short story and pointing me towards it, and I did. I did read it actually. In the end, I found it on some website somewhere. And yeah, brilliant! What a brilliant idea! Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, like if uh, this is this is another very very clumsy segue, but the the segue over to my upcoming book that was one of the main um, uh, inspirations behind the antagonist of my story, Lutz Viscara, who is. Not a not a not a shapeshifter, but he is a he is a body snatcher, and he is you know very similar yes. to the 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 it from it follows. He is very single mindedly focused on reconnecting with and joining up with, so to speak, our our lead heroine Kate. And he 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 looks like a person. He looks like a, your average you know older teenage boy, but he is this you know alien menace and yeah. despite the fact a, that he looks a literal monster he is a literal monster and despite the fact that he can he can he can pass he, he talks to people and and fools them quite easily into thinking that he is just really anybody else when you get any kind of narration from his point of view he sounds like basically i, I tried to almost to ape that narrative style of like this a completely alien viewpoint yes like like he doesn't he, he to an extent he's quite fascinated by it but he doesn't fully understand what it means to be a human and and he's infuriated by it he, he clearly as you say he's obsessed with the the female sort of protagonist or kate he, he, you know one of the main central characters he's completely obsessed with her mm-hmm. but not not in the way that uh, he's certainly not in a pleasant romantic way, and not even in the same way as maybe a you know a human you know a stalker or something. Mm-hmm. He's almost like the ultimate stalker ex from hell, isn't he? he? He's his his fascination is on a completely different. Well, it is it is that you know inter an interdimensional uh, obsession. Mm-hmm. Well, especially because like, from his point of view, she's the only other person on the planet because mm. he he refers and. I'm going to I'm going to read you a passage from this in a second, but the, oh, the, please do! No, I was going to ask you if you would mind doing us a reading, so that would be terrific. Yeah, please the, do. The, the central concept of his character is that he does not see anybody else other than Kate, even really as alive. Like there are there are these basically autonomous piles of flesh that kind of walk around the planet and seem to have these basic behaviors that they do, but there's there's no one really home. Like these are these are tools to be used. They are occasionally obstacles, and when they don't behave the way he wants them to behave or the way he believes they should behave, he becomes infuriated because you know his his worldview is coming into conflict with the world, like this world that we live in. Yeah, like he's, you've, you've summed it up perfectly there. Yeah, in your novel, he his reaction when someone doesn't do what he thinks they ought to do is a bit like, you know, my reaction if a piece of equipment doesn't work properly. You know, if my laptop crashes, I'm like frustrated and angry and, you know, and, and, you, and hit he it lashed out. He lashed out very violently because of that. Yeah. And so this, this passage uh, takes place about three quarters of the way through the book. And up until this point, we have not heard his viewpoint at all. And we have not um, really seen him on screen 
very much except for a couple of flashbacks, but this is when he finally shows up in the story proper and begins narrating uh, his own uh, his own viewpoint of things. And this is chapter this is a section of chapter nineteen entitled Flesh. He was the Alice body. He was curled in the front seat of the station wagon. He was the Ben body. He was sleeping beside her in the cabin's double bed. He was the Riley body. He inhaled sweet nicotine smoke under cold, unfamiliar stars. He was the Lutz body. He was waiting in the flesh among the trees, peering through frosted windows. He watched the empty world turn against him through another pair of unblinking eyes. And another, and another, and another. The change was easy. A touch, a mental twitch, a chemical flashpoint, then the surging, pleasurable warmth of a new skin. Eyes flickering open, the flesh smooth and welcoming. There was no effort, no expenditure of power. He had taken a dozen bodies this week alone, perhaps more. Now, he would take one more, and one more besides, and then he and Heartbreaker would come together and rest. Then the flesh would welcome them both. They would walk out into the bright and empty world, and they would never come back. Fantastic. Fantastic stuff. Very well read as well as very well written. So that, that was That's something I struggle with a little bit if I ever try and read my own stuff uh, out loud. It's, I, I find it quite difficult to do, but you uh, nailed it. So that, 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 that is a tantalising glimpse of what awaits in the, uh, in the page. Of, it's The Unwelcome, yeah. isn't it, yeah, is, the the, is the title that of comes the upcoming out, novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, The Unwelcome that comes out in the UK in late January, January 29th. And if you live in the States... That's going to be February 2nd, so be on the lookout for that. Pre-orders are open now, I believe. You find it out there on Amazon. Oh, I didn't know it was available for pre-order, okay. I'll get me, I will get my order in in that case. Well, they didn't tell me. I had to go, I had to go look for myself. It's like, oh, it's actually, it's up. You can pre-order it. I, I didn't know. They didn't tell me. But, uh, and the cover image that, um, that uh, I don't know, I guess the publisher put, pulled together with your input, the cover image is uh, is a good one, is a very good one, mm-hmm. actually. So, yeah, take a look if that's up there already. That That is definitely worth checking out. It is. That's a, a fellow by the name of Keelan Patrick Burke. You can find him at Elder Lemon Designs on Twitter. Uh, I located him through an, another horror friend of mine. He had, he had done his cover as well, and I, I worked with him over the course of a month on that cover and it, it was a it was a very it was like it was a complex design for him because we didn't have like the stock images we needed so we actually did a a photo shoot with another actress to get that specific uh pose and expression so we could piece it all together and i i, I love looking at it it is it, it captures the kind of destruction of identity that i tried to infuse yes. into the story yeah and then just even even if you even without the accompanying book, just as a piece of kind of weird avant-garde, unsettling modern art, it is it is a it is a great image. I think you've done a great job with that. I am incredibly pleased. So yeah, pl- please please definitely get your hands get your pre-order in now for a copy of uh, of Jacob's upcoming book, The Unwelcome. And um, um, what's next for you then, Jacob? What else have you got on the horizon other than the upcoming release? Uh, I've got two things. Uh, one is I am currently working on my next novel, my fourth novel, which is Devil City. That is going to be a 
a, a half-crime-noir, half-dark, eldritch fantasy story about werewolves and devils from the moon and one scrappy private detective's attempt to reconnect with somebody from his past, and it's all going to come crashing together during um, what's honestly become a very a very uh, timely situation. You know, there are there there is an election happening in the story, and there is essentially race riots happening in the story as well. And I, I began writing it before all of this went down, and all of a sudden it's it's all become very very pointed and yeah, very very topical very, by the sounds of yeah, it. Yeah, very, very pointed, very topical, and well, I don't know how people will re- uh, receive that, but. You know, we'll see. I'm, I'm certainly very pleased with how it's going so far, and and uh, John's been nice enough to read a little bit of it as I'm uh, plugging along at it, and uh, he seems to be enjoying it, or at least being very nice and telling me he is. Oh no, I am indeed, <laughs> and, and and actually, I think there's a few more chapters that I am uh, I am yet to read through, so I will I will get to those. But yeah, the, the, of what I've read so far, there are some very very good original ideas in there that I really like, and it, and it's you know. You and I are quite similar. I think we're sort of genre hoppers. Mm-hmm. Everything's in the dark fiction category, but you know, we, we've talked about your novel that is in effect a kind of science fiction horror, present day kind of isolated setting, the unwelcome. But this this new project is is fantasy meets detective noir, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I you know wholeheartedly commend the uh, the genre mashup concepts because I love that. Mm-hmm. And the one other thing I've got coming out, and I don't know when precisely this will be out, is I also have a short story that is based in the same continuity as The Unwelcome. It takes place prior to the events of the book, and it's just this this nameless student's encounter with the Lutz character, and how he both escapes from his influence and also never really does. And it all takes place over the course of three days in this very bizarre, very painful experimental art project. And once we have more details on that, you'll be hearing more about that very soon. You see writers take that approach sometimes with a almost as a promotional tool you know it's mm-hmm. like you've got it's a bit like a tri- not quite a teaser it's certainly a lot more fully formed than a teaser but it's a it's a short form bite-sized version of of what's to come in the full novel but yes that'll uh yeah i'm not quite sure what route what route you could go down to release that maybe it's as you say it could be it could be available on your website it could be for sale as an ebook um but yeah i hope you're able to to bring that bring that to life in the coming months because I because uh, I have read it and it was ace well thank you very much I and I can't wait to share it with the world as soon as I get the first opportunity the the ebook idea was a uh, actually a, a fairly tantalizing one because like it, it will never be like bound up as like a as a as a as a novella or anything it's not quite long enough but like to you know to, to have it available on Kindle for like a dollar or something as like as a not as a teaser, but as like some some manner of promotional material. Um, I think could be a very good idea. So thank you for that. Yeah, no. Well, good luck. Good luck with it. Thank you and, so much. Um, well, that is probably time to draw our sinister proceedings to a close. Yes. Uh, Jacob, I wondered if you wanted to um, uh, plug anything or, or even just give out your your contact details on Twitter, for example, or any other social media or other mechanisms by which listeners might wish to get in touch with you? Uh, Alright, you can reach me by 
finding a very dark pool of water anywhere along the coast, sticking your head underneath the water, screaming at a middle G. And I'll usually be there within about 15 to 20 minutes by some manner of locomotion, but if the, if you're not near the coast, or if you're afraid of water, or you think that idea was a little bit silly, you can reach me at uh, on Twitter. At Jacob Stephen Moore, J A C O B S T E V E N M O H R. Um, you'll find me. You'll find John Richter on there as well. We always are on there talking about, you know, some yeah. so, some manner of spooky or cybernetic thing. And I wish I had a website to plug right now, but I simply do not. And I'm, I'm working on that. I'm going to get a website eventually. But in the meantime, Twitter is where you'll find me. I'm on there way too much when I should be working on actual work. Uh, give me a ring. We'll yammer on about whatever. Oh, and and you know, don't don't spend too much time setting up the website because you've got to focus on writing these uh, these great books. It, it's funny actually. I, I hadn't realised that you were contactable in that method through the um, the middle G underwater scream. <laughs> Liam, my usual co-host, is is contacted in a very similar way. But it's you just have to spill beer on the floor and and shout obscenities into it, and he, he usually turns up. Well, it didn't work today because he's he's, abs- he's sadly absent. But um, I'm sure we'll we'll track him down eventually. Well, maybe, maybe he's a uh, maybe. We, we ha- it has to be a more expensive beer. Maybe he's moved on to ale or fresh blood. Like it could be. It could, that could be it. He could have gone all up market since series one. Mm-hmm. Since, um, since it, I should mention that actually, we we are recording this in late August in the sort of sweltering heat, or at least it has been here in the UK, like intolerably boiling because we mm-hmm. don't have air conditioning anywhere. Um, but but of course, this second series is is probably only going to air a bit a little bit later in the year. So uh, by the time this comes out, who knows that the, the elections in the US might be done and dusted. We we we, we will see. We shall see, and I'm sure that you know, like us in America, the rest of the world is also waiting on bated breath to see just how this clash of octogenarian past their prime <laughs> titans is going to play out. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like watching uh, Godzilla well, versus King Kong, except they both got walkers, you know. Yeah, it's like watching uh, I don't know Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair, but like now rather oh. than back back in the eighties. Uh, we should definitely do a podcast about wrestling one of these times because I, I, I oh. I've got a, I've got a friend who got me into it fairly recently, and I, I find the whole thing just incredibly fascinating. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. That is a, that is as you say. It is a different topic, but it is one that you could definitely you, you could. Um, well, there are plenty of podcasts about it. Actually, That's I was true. listening That's to Jim true. Cornette's podcast mm-hmm. earlier today, which is a if you you know if you think if you think this one is me rambling on for a long time, I think he can usually fill a good three and a half hours <laughs> with uh, just ranting about how bad modern wrestling is compared to the good old days in the eighties. <laughs> anyway, <sighs> on which uh, I guess on which. Um, Peculiar note. Uh, I should I should leave you I should leave you in peace, and I'll perhaps um, you know utterly without permission uh, and, and see how long I can get away with it. Pinch some of Ennio Morricone's fantastic score to the thing to uh, to close us out, and and we should say actually he passed away, didn't he, in July this he year, did, which he is very did. sad. Very sad. Uh, what a a, ty- a titan of film scores. Yeah, a, re- a true great. So um, thank you, Ennio, for all your. Ace music and um, and and certainly this one it will be uh, fitting to close us out with its kind of paranoid, sinister, tense strains. Um, but hopefully, uh, Jacob, you will be neither paranoid nor sinister nor tense, and you you can have a, a nice, relaxing rest of your day. 
Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. No, it's been a pleasure. Lovely to have you on, and uh, I will speak to you again soon, hopefully. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. See, uh, see you soon, and see you all, uh, the listeners. Well, we don't see you, do we? Or do we? I'll leave you with that thought. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, there you have it. An episode that was recorded quite a while ago and now very topical with the results emerging even as I record this outro. And so, just to confirm, to avoid any accusations of miscounting or vote rigging, all the late ballots have been counted and yes, it is true, I can confirm that the thing is indeed officially entered into the Hall of Pain. Uh, thanks once again for listening and thank you to Jacob for making an appearance which hopefully you enjoyed watch this space for more natterings of a dark and sinister nature very soon with another special guest appearance as well as an update on Liam's whereabouts in the meantime look after yourselves and don't trust anyone